You can turn over to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We're back in the Gospel of Matthew. But as we come to this text this morning, um, this is a very heartfelt text from the Lord. It's a very uh, serious text as far as Scripture goes. And we want to take time today just to look at this. And it's the tragedy of the unprepared life. The tragedy of the unprepared life. And we're going to look at the first 13 verses of uh, Matthew 25. Now remember, Matthew 25 is the uh, discourse, the Olivet Discourse of our Lord. Matthew 24 and 25 kind of go together. And it's his own sermon about his second coming. And we've been through Matthew 24. We took a lot of time to get through that. There's a lot of prophecy involved and things like that about his second coming. But this particular section that we're going to look at this morning is a section of warning. And uh, it's, it's meant to be just that. It was, it was the Lord um, giving Israel and the disciples and the, the people there, even who find themselves in the tribulation during this time, a warning about his second coming. And so I want you to follow along as, we, as I read for you our text, verses 1 to 13 of Matthew chapter 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some oil, some of your oils, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered in verse 12, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is a a text of warning. I, I read this last week a little story about a high school rivalry in basketball. They were cross-town rivals. And uh, this is apparently a true story. I don't know. I wasn't able to really track down the the whole deal. But it was just basketball land in these two... Uh, high schools were always just at each other's throats when it came to basketball season. And it was the biggest game of the season. Both teams were just filled with the adrenaline as they went out onto the court. And that night, a basketball legend would be built, would be brought forth. The first half of play ended with only a single point separating the teams. Rules at the time still required a center jump at the start of the second half. Our guys controlled the tip and ran their fast break to absolute perfection. A textbook break all the way. The center tipped it to the head of the jump circle and the big forward handled it and passed it over his head like a bullet to the guard breaking down the side. And the guard rifled it to the other guard breaking down the opposite side. He dribbled the ball once and he laid it up perfectly into the little white square on the backboard just above the hoop. The ball kissed the glass and dropped for two points, and the crowd went nuts. Then stunned silence. Everyone noticed it at the same time, the fans, the players, the officials, the coaches, the referees. It was the wrong basket. Incredible. Our guys had done everything right except for one thing. They forgot which goal was theirs. And they lost the game that night by one point. As it turned out, they had put the winning difference in the goal for the other team. 
See, sometimes in life we can understand the game perfectly. We can play the game, execute masterfully. But if we forget the main thing, the goal, we can lose in the end. The main thing is that the main thing always remains the main thing. Sometimes when we get into parables and sometimes when we get into prophecy, people get into all this minutia and they, they miss the main message. And I don't want us to do that this morning with this parable. I want us to see what Jesus has for us. Jesus is teaching us here the vast difference between investing and spending your life. The difference between being unprepared for that day when he shall return and being prepared. And I want us to understand that this morning as we look at this text of Scripture. We don't want to get to the end of life only thinking that we're, we're doing everything right, but we put the ball in the wrong goal, a goal for the other team. So this morning, I want to talk to you about the tragedy of the unprepared life. It's the parable of the ten virgins, the bridesmaids, in verses 1 through 13. There's some common themes here in these parables in chapter 25. The outline of chapter 25 basically is 1 through 13. is the parable of the virgins. Then you have the parable of the talents, which doesn't talk about an unprepared life, but it t- talks about wasted opportunity. We're going to be looking at that next week. And then... The rest of the chapter uh, speaks of 31 to 46, talks about the description of the last judgment or the separation of the goats from the sheep. But each one of these parables, each one of these stories has common themes. Each case, the return of the Lord is sudden and it's unexpected. It's sudden and it's unexpected. Secondly, in each case, the Lord's return results in unalterable division between two groups of people. After he returns, there's no way you could ever bring those two groups of people back together. You have those who are following him and those who are not. And when he returns, it will be too late to make that transition. And then the third thing, each case, each story here, the people who are lost are utterly surprised at their rejection in the end. They're caught off guard. And we're going to look at that. Now this parable, as I said, is taken from this great Olivet Discourse. And remember that the disciples had been asking Jesus, when is all this going to take place? Because in Matthew 24, he gives them signs of his coming, right? We've gone through all that. And he wanted, they wanted to know, when is this going to happen? He goes, well, let me give you some signs of when this time will come. And that's what Matthew 24 was all about. But then he tells them in verse Matthew 24, verse 36, look at what it says. It says, Of that day and hour knows no man, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father knows. And he repeats it down in verse 42. He says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. And he says it again in verse 44 of of chapter 24. Therefore you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you don't expect. And then even down at the very last in verse 50, he says, The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, in an hour that he does not know. The Lord's return will happen unexpectedly. Four times he's already told them over and over again, you're not going to know exactly when. You're going to see some times, you're going to see some rough estimates of when this may happen, but you're not going to know the day. The exact moment, the exact hour, you will never know. The epistles tell us that the Lord will return as a what? As a thief in the night. The last time, you know, I heard of people breaking into people's houses at night, it's not like they knock on the front door and say, excuse me, I'd like to rob you. Can you open your house for me? No, they come in unexpected. And this parable is a parable with the intent of teaching us about the suddenness, the unexpectedness of the coming of the Lord. And we should, therefore, look at our own lives and make sure that we are prepared in our Christian walks so that we are not caught in that unexpected moment being unprepared at his coming. Now, I don't have to tell you that 
the world, the first time Jesus came, was not ready. That's rather clear. They should have been ready, but they weren't. I mean, the prophets had marked out very clearly what signs to look for. They said there would be a forerunner, somebody who comes before the Messiah there was, John the Baptist. They would identify him as a voice crying in the wilderness. That's exactly what John did. They said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He was. They said that he would be born of a virgin. He was. He would be from the line of David. He was. And then they said he would come to Galilee for his ministry, which he did. And they said that this individual would have great power, do miraculous works, which he did. And yet still the world wasn't ready to embrace him as a Savior because they weren't prepared. And so he came onto his own, the Bible says, John says, and his own what? Received him not. They rejected him. He was in the world and the world was made by him, but the world what? Knew him not, it says. He even says, he weeps over Jerusalem and he says, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. You would not come to me as your Messiah, as your king. And even in Luke 19, verse 41, it says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and he wept over it, saying, Even if you, you at least in this day, the things which belong unto the peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. He's weeping over Jerusalem. If only they would have known the time. If only somehow they could have understood it. But they didn't. They missed it. And this parable warns us. It's a warning not to let that happen again. The Lord came the first time. People missed it. Big time. And what Jesus is doing is don't don't let that happen the second time. The second time I come, don't miss it. Because in the future, I mean, you can miss his first coming, right? And you can kind of say, well, I don't know if Jesus is God or not. And you can come to a point in time in your life where you repent of your sins, and you turn to Christ, and you acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior, and you can get saved. You can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You can have all your sins forgiven through Christ. That's His promise. When you yield your life to Him. But see, after His second coming, there will be no second chance. There's not going to be any time for repentance at that point. Either you embrace Christ now, in the age of grace in which we live, because after he comes his second time, it will be too late. That is when he's coming not as Savior, he's coming as judge. The Bible tells us to judge sinners and to reward the righteous. And that his coming will not be necessarily announced so everybody can be ready. You'll see certain time signs, no doubt, but he's not going to let us know when he's coming. Nobody knows. It's going to be sudden and it's going to be unexpected. And that's why we should be prepared. There's not going to be any second chance. The day of opportunity would have come and gone forever. Well, what's the, the purpose of this, this parable? And you see here in the very first verse, it says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. He says, then. That word, he's kind of putting us in time. He's using that, that word then there to kind of use it as a, 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 a time frame for us. Now, you have to understand what's going on here in this chapter. Uh, he relates this parable to explain the kingdom of heaven. He compares the kingdom of heaven to these ten bridesmaids who go out to meet the bridegroom. And he gives another of these several warning parables, as we, we talked about later on in, in chapter 25. This is the first one. And they all say the same thing, that his exact second coming is not known. And it will not be known in advance. And it will come at a time when you least expect it. So the parable here of these ten virgins, these ten bridesmaids, is given so that we can understand the importance of being spiritually prepared to meet Christ when he returns to earth. Because after he appears, unbelievers who are then alive in this future date during the tribulation, will have no further chance for salvation. At that point, they will be judged. They will be sent to a place called hell, a place of everlasting torment, 
We just did a study on heaven. Well, look at the study on heaven and everything the opposite. That's what hell is, and even tenfold worse. Hell is a real place, beloved. But the setting for this parable is the typical Jewish Middle Eastern there, over there in Palestine, in Israel, their wedding ceremony. And you have to understand a little bit about what went on in their whole wedding ceremony. All right? Virtually everybody in the whole village was involved to some degree. They celebrated. They came together. They would make food and they would have a festival. And the neighborhood community of this, these, these cities would be involved and they'd be invited as guests. And it was a time of, you know, joy. It was a time of happiness for the, the couple who was being married and their families. It was a time of, of just rejoicing. But the, the Jewish marriage consisted of basically three parts, and you have to understand that to kind of get the gist of what's going on here in this first parable. The three parts were this. The first part basically was that of the engagement. And the engagement, you have to understand, was not handled by the, the bride or the fiancés. It wasn't handled by them. It was handled by their parents. Their parents were responsible for the engagement. And it was usually arranged by the father of the bride and the father of the groom. They would come together and they would announce that, okay, we're going to engage these two people to a contract of marriage. And the couple basically had no, pretty much no say. <laughs> it was up to the parents. So they would get engaged. And the second stage was what they called betrothal. And, and what that is is the ceremony, the marriage ceremony at which the bride and the groom come and they exchange vows. And they do that in the presence of their family and their friends. Then at that point, from that point on, the couple was considered to be married. That was it. From that point on, if the husband would die, he, she would be considered a widow at that point. Even though they haven't even consummated the marriage physically. And so during that time, this couple was considered to be married. Um, and the husband during this time, that was his, his time to prepare his house, okay, for his wife. And sometimes this period of betrothal could, could last many months, sometimes as much as a year. And the groom would establish himself in a business or trade so he could prove to the family that he was able to care for his new wife. And at the end of this second stage, this betrothal period, they had a wedding feast. And it was... In the feast and its related celebrations and parties and everything, that this whole community would come together and they would celebrate these two brought together in holy matrimony, in in a union. And sometimes this festival could last a week. Now this is all before they (laughs) consummate the marriage, mind you. So these poor poor couples have really gone through it. Okay? And... You know, they have these parties and they have all these things going on. And sometimes, like I said, it could last up to a week. But there would be a time when the, the bride and the groom and their attendants would come together and they would parade through the streets and they would proclaim that the, the wedding feast is about to begin and everybody would follow them to the, the festivity and that's where the doors were open and everybody was entered in. And the procession usually began at night. That's just how they did it. And so at night they would have lamps or they would have torches which were used by the wedding party themselves to illuminate their way and to kind of signify, kind of like in our modern day ceremony, you know, usually the bridesmaids, they'll carry flowers. Well, back then they carried torches. Okay, go figure, but that's what they did. Not very romantic, but very practical. It was night, they had to see where they were going. And it signified that they were part of the wedding ceremony. And at the end of that feast period, a close friend of the groom would be kind of like what we would call best man, you might say. He would take the hand of the bride and he'd place it in the hand of the groom. And the couple, for the, the first time, would be left alone. And they would consummate the marriage. The party was over, everybody left, and then they were left for their honeymoon time. This is where we find ourselves right here. 
we find ourselves in this third stage of those three things. It was the third part of the marriage rite that Jesus used as the framework for this parable. They'd already been engaged. They have already gone through the betrothal period. And now they're actually over waiting for the bride or the, the groomsmen to come for the bride. And so they would get all fancied up and they'd have their torches ready or whatever. And they would go over to the, the bride's house and they would wait for the groom to come. And then they would have a big parade to this big feast. That's where we find ourselves. These, these people that we're, we're looking at here in verses 2 to 4, we don't want to read into this more than what it says. I, I've read commentaries this past week, and it, it, they go into all this minutia. Well, this means that, and this means that, and oh, well, this talks about this. And, and, but it doesn't say it in the text. It just is not there. And I don't think Jesus meant it to be there. Um, it's a very simple story, and we just have to understand the cultural relationship and bring it up to date for us, but pretty much it's, it's a very simple parable. It says there that the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, ten bridemaids, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. All right? These, these bridesmaids are broken up into two groups. You notice there, five are foolish and five are wise. We get the word for our, our brain, for the wise ones, and we get the word for a moron from the foolish ones. That would be original. That's literally what it means. It means they were stupid. They were unwise. But you, you, you go back to the, the thinking here that the first time Christ appeared, the world was not ready to receive him. And, and all this stuff kind of you know, went on before this. And now he's talking about his second coming. And he, his, his intent is saying, hey, don't be caught off guard again the second time. So he shares a parable of this wedding feast. And this parable warns the world not to allow this misstep of the Messiah again. They don't want to miss him again. He doesn't want them to miss him. So preparation for his, his second coming will be even more decisive and and consequential than the preparation for his first. And so he says there, when this happens, okay, when this happens, the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. Ten virgins. Now, there's no moral implications in them being virgins. It's just that that's what bridesmaids were. It doesn't mean that they were moral people. That's not what they're saying. They're just saying that's, that's the, the structure of the society, and usually your bridesmaids were, were to be considered virgins, and there might be some implication in having ten of them, because when you look at the number ten in, in Judaism, a lot of things uh, deal with that number. According to Josephus, it was the minimum of ten who were required to celebrate the Passover, or establish a synagogue, or give an official wedding blessing. So we see that kind of a situation. So ten virgins, that may be an implication. But you can't even draw any implications from saying that five were foolish and five were not. He's not saying, oh, 50% of people are going to be saved and 50% are not going to be. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying that that's the breakdown here. But these attendants were virgins because it was their custom. The lamps that they carried... It says there they, they carried uh, lamps. They're, 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 the word literally means a torch. It talks of a torch, not a lamp. So you might want to think of them carrying these torches, and on these torches they would have at the top a kind of a, a uh, piece of like chicken wire, and in the chicken wire they would stuff um, like fabric, and then they would pour the oil on the fabric, and then they could light the... the, uh, the the fabric, and it would burn like a torch. And the, the chicken wire kind of stuff, it wasn't chicken wire, but something like that, kind of kept it contained and kept the, the thing able to burn like that. And they would always generally have to have a flask of oil if you were carrying a torch because the torch would eventually burn out of oil. You know, it would burn up, and they'd, they'd have to shove more fabric in there and pour more oil on it, and that's how they would work it. Um, so that's the whole process that's going on here. And they're going over to the bride's 
house to meet the bride, wait for the bridegroom. It says they went to meet, and that kind of speaks of a, a official meeting, almost like you're meeting a dignitary. It wasn't just a kind of a meet and greet, hey, how you doing? No, this is an official time. And it says there that the bridegroom is obviously Christ himself. I mean, that's the connotation here. That's, that's who that um, we understand him to be. Well, who do the ten virgins represent? Well, they're obviously professed, and hear me on this, they're professed believers in Christ. The lamps symbolize probably the, the identity their identity with the church. They're carrying a lamp. They're carrying something that identifies them as part of this bridal party. On the outside, they all kind of look the same. And that's very important to understand. I, I put down here in your notes some of the similarities between these women. They all were invited to the banquet. They all responded positively to the wedding invitation. They all were part of what we would call the visible church. They all had, be, they all had come they, they all had some affection and even long love for the bridegroom. All confessed Jesus as their Lord. All believed and were waiting for Jesus' second coming. All were alike in that they became drowsy and they fell asleep when the bridegroom's coming was delayed. So these, these ten virgins represent people who are professing Christ. They're professing Christ doesn't mean they're Christians, because apparently five of them weren't. Because it says five were wise, five were foolish. It says five of them were foolish, and five were wise, or prudent. Now, this is where the unpreparedness comes in. They were unprepared despite their outward appearance. See, I believe today we can come to church, we can carry our Bible, we can even go witnessing, we can do all these things, and we can look pretty good on the outside. But the Bible makes it very clear, beloved, that that doesn't secure your salvation, doing those things. It just doesn't. They carried torches, it says, and they all looked alike, but the foolish people had nothing to burn in them, (laughs) nothing that would give them light, significance. I mean, if you stop and think, a torch without any fuel is kind of worthless. What are you going to do with it? Beat somebody to, you know, you beat somebody with it, that's about it. It's not going to give you the original purpose and what it was intended for. And so a profession of faith in, in Jesus Christ, hear me on this, without a saving relationship to him, is just as worthless. You could say you're a Christian as long as the day is long. But unless you have that saving relationship with Christ, and he possesses you, you're still in spiritual darkness. You're still left in your sin. You can do all the spiritual activity you want. That's not going to change that one bit. Now, the wise bridemaids here, it says that they took oil in flasks along with their lamps. So, think of it this way. Their outward profession of Christ was was really substantiated by their their inward possession. They were able to, to allow their lamps to continue burning because they were prepared for the occasion. They had that oil of preparedness. The oil is similar even to the, remember when we talked about the, the wedding garments back in Matthew 22. Remember when the, the, the king said, hey, if you want to come to this wedding, great, I'm inviting you, but you've got to wear these garments. And there was one that said, oh, I'm not going to wear what he wants me to wear. I'm going to wear whatever I want to wear. Remember, he wasn't allowed in. Matthew 22, verses 11 to 13. That was the only condition for attending the feast was to wear the wedding clothes that the king said to wear. But somebody thought, well, I'm going to do it my own way. See, that's what gets you in trouble. You can't get to heaven your own way. <laughs> there's no back door. There's no side door. There's, no, there's one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Period. 
So there's no other way, really, to have your sins forgiven other than the cross, other than coming through Christ. You can't work it out. You can't be religious enough that God will somehow look at you and say, oh, you're so religious, I'm just going to leave you in even though you didn't follow my son. That's not going to happen. Like the man without proper wedding clothes, these five bridemaids here were without proper torches. They had a, you might say, a form of godliness. They were part of the wedding party. They all looked the same except their their torch went out because they didn't have the oil that they needed to have. They weren't prepared. They had no spiritual life or power. Why? Because they didn't belong to God. They were committed to Christ, you might say, religiously. There's people like that. There's people who are committed to to Christ religiously. There's people that are committed to Christ even intellectually, socially, emotionally. But when it comes right down to it, they're not committed to Him in their hearts because their hearts have simply not been regenerated by the saving grace and that's the only way you can be saved. James 2.17 says that you can have an appearance of faith, but it can be faith that's dead. Faith that's not going to yield anything. These bridesmaids were in darkness. They were not in the light. And the warning Jesus gave here in this parable is repeated over and over and over in the Gospels. It's a continuous recurring theme when you look throughout the Gospels in His teaching. He continues to warn, you know what? If you're going to profess Christ, you better possess Christ. He talks about that in the wheat and the tares. There's some genuine, there's some false. The sheep and the goats, the different kinds of soils. Over and over again, Jesus wants us to be clear about our faith. I mean, this was not a popular message for Jesus to teach back then. It's still not a popular message for for anybody to teach even today. Because people go, are you questioning my style? I'm not questioning anything. I'm saying you better look into your own heart and your own life, and you better not just be counting on your religious activity or your outward appearance to save you. You better be able to point to the power of God through Christ transforming your life at some point. When I talk to people and witnessing to people and they kind of have an air of religiosity about them, I'll ask them a question. I'll say, how long have you been a Christian? Oh, all my life. (laughs) Wrong answer. That's what I say. I don't say that to them, but I say that to them in my head. I'm thinking, wait a minute. What do you mean all your life? And you got to start to kind of dissect what they mean by that. I'm not saying that you have to have a time, date, and exact moment of your salvation. Because some of us don't. Some of us can, some of us don't. But I hope that you notice a difference in your life between before Christ and after Christ. Because if you don't, there may not be any difference. As I said, there's... No conclusion to be drawn regarding the number who will be saved when in this illustration. You can't say, oh, 50%. No, that's not what he's talking about. That's not the emphasis of the story. But the proportion does exist, and it does say that a large number of professing Christians, the professing church, basically does not belong to God. And you don't have to look too far in churches to figure that out. There's a lot of people who are deceived in their religiosity. It existed in the time of Christ. It exists even today. And it's evident from this parable that it will be, it will also exist even at the end of the tribulation in the future in which time we find ourselves in this text. But it says there the statement that the bridegroom was delaying He was delaying. He was delayed. That kind of just reinforces what Jesus has been saying, that, hey, nobody knows what time I'm coming back. You can't point to a time, a day, an hour, and say, well, this is it. 
So whenever you hear these people who point to times, and just cast them off. It's ridiculous. It will not be delayed, let me say this, from a divine perspective, but from a human perspective. See, I mean, God knows when he's returning, right? The Bible says that. The Father knows. And that's when he's going to return. But from our perspective, from a human perspective, it seems, boy, this is delayed. This is, this is, this is taking a long time. Because so much time has elapsed since his first coming. Remember, the disciples thought that he was going to come like next Tuesday. <laughs> and he, this is part of the process of him sharing with them, no, 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 you, you're, you're misunderstanding. There's some time here. <laughs> and this is going to be delayed. There's, there's going to be some drawn out time from your perspective. And so during that time, Jesus dies, resurrected. He goes back to heaven. And all of a sudden, what happens? People start to go back to their routines, right? He said he's coming back, but he hasn't come back yet. So have to make a living, have to do things, carry on business. And I think Jesus here is giving the disciples a hint that he's not going to be returning anytime soon. But the main thrust of this parable, as is the entire discourse, is directed to the generation who will be living during the latter part of this great tribulation time period. Even the the short period of time that will elapse between the signs of his coming and his actual coming will cause people to think, ah, maybe he's not going to come. Maybe he's delayed. Something's going on here. Well, what happens to these, these bridesmaids as they're waiting? It says they became drowsy. And what? Fell asleep. They began to sleep. See, they were expecting the bridegroom's coming, and they were gathered together. They're waiting for him. Even the the foolish ones, their their torches were burning bright at that point. They thought, hey, we're we're okay. See, what's taking them so long? Man, I'm running out of oil. What's going on here? And there's no indication here that this The bridesmaids were lazy. That's not, I don't see that here. That's not why they were sleeping. Sleep is a normal pattern in life, right? I mean, you're up so many hours, you sleep so many hours. (coughs) If you're up too long, your body doesn't function right. So the sleep of the foolish bridesmaids, it might suggest their false confidence in, in in their their torches that they would last until he came. And the sleep of the wise ones might suggest their genuine security and their rest in the Lord. I mean, aren't you glad that you can go to bed at night, put your head on the pillow and fall asleep and not wonder what's going to happen when you die? If you were to die tonight in your sleep, if you have faith in Christ that you know that you'd be ushered into his presence, you don't have to worry about it. What if, well, what if, I, what if I sin, you know, if I, if I dream something and it's a sin and, oh, you know, I don't have time to, you don't have to worry about that. Jesus paid for our sins, past, present, future. And we are secure in Christ. And so maybe the wise ones knew that security because they were in Christ. That's what their, their lamps signified here. But the foolish ones maybe had a false sense of confidence, whereas they were able to sleep. I mean, life should go on as normal, right? I mean, we can't, we can't go home and pack our bags and jump up on the roof and say, okay, Jesus, come on, I'm quitting my job. I'm gonna... I mean, think of all the cults and all the people that have done that over the years. Ridiculous. I mean, in a way, God... Had, does want us to go on with our life. We have to eat, we have to drink, we have to work, sleep. That's why in Matthew 24, when it says, hey, there shall be two in the men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Why were they in the field? They were in the field because, you know, they're, they're going back to the normal thing of life. That's okay if you're prepared. 
That's okay. But if you're not prepared, you're in big trouble. See, it will not be their common participation in the normal activities of human life that will distinguish the prepared from the unprepared because we're all kind of doing the same thing here. What distinguishes the prepared from the unprepared is that internal participation in the life of God that only a believer possesses. Those, those torches of the believers will shine brightly, but those of the unbelievers will not even burn. They'll run out of oil before it's even time. See, we can't distinguish these things from the outside because, you know what? I mean, all you can go on is somebody's word. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Okay. I don't know what's in their heart. Now, at times, you can look at somebody's life and say, boy, your life is not depicting that of Christ. You might want to look at this a little closer. You can make some calls there. But even so, you, you don't know if someone's saved or not. Well, look at the particulars here, because in, in verse 5, it goes down and it talks about this cry that went out at midnight. It says, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout. I mean, at midnight, most people typically are asleep. You should be if you're not. I mean, I mean, some people, I guess, stay up later, whatever. But just as the bridesmaids were, the typical person is going to be asleep at midnight. You're not going to stay up all night all the time. You, you, you couldn't function. And the bridegroom's arrival at this time underscores this unexpectedness of Christ's return. Do you know that the children of Israel began their journey out of Egypt at midnight? Interesting. Rabbinical tr- tradition holds that the Messiah would come to earth at that hour. See, all the bridesmaids knew that the groom would be coming soon. They had actually gathered at the, the bride's house and they're waiting for him. They were well aware that the engagement had gone on, the betrothal period was over, and that the festivities of this final party were about to begin. But they just didn't know precisely when he would arrive. And then they were awakened with the shout, Hey, behold the bridegroom! He's here. Come out to meet him. In the same way, the people that lived during the tribulation period, they're going to see all these signs of Christ coming. They're going to see it right before their eyes. I mean, we read about it, but they're actually going to be there and they're going to be able to see it firsthand. And some of them are still not going to get it until he returns. They didn't know the moment of his arrival until they saw him. Same way the second coming, that's exactly how it's going to be. As soon as the bridegroom's presence was announced, look at what happens here. It says, all those virgins arose and they trimmed their lamps. What's that mean? Well, they got up, they could probably kind of a little groggy, you know. And they started cutting the, the burnt fabric off their, off their lamps and, and probably re- replenishing that, getting ready for this, 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 this trip that they were going to make down the street and everybody's going to join them and go to this party. They took the oil out, the wise ones did, and they put new fabric in there and put more oil on there so the, the, the torch would be burning bright for this parade of this festive occasion. But then we see the crisis. It says in verse 7, Then all those virgins rose, they trimmed their lamps. Verse 8, And the foolish said to the wise, Hey, uh, could you give us some of your oil for our lamps? They're going out. We don't have enough. He took too long to get here. Now at that moment, the foolish bridesmaids realized the crisis in which they found themselves. They had no oil. They didn't have enough. It was not that they had been unaware of their lack of oil. They knew that. It's just that they were not concerned enough to get the proper amount for this event 
Perhaps they thought maybe at the last moment they could run down to the corner store and do that, but what store is open at midnight? Perhaps they thought they could borrow oil from somebody there on the street or one of the other bridesmaids, but they couldn't do that now. To be honest, we don't know why they didn't bring the oil. It doesn't tell us, and we can't go there. There's no reason given for their negligence. And you know what? It's because it's, it's, it's not an issue. Do you understand that? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter why they didn't bring any oil. The fact is they didn't bring any. And at this point in time, it doesn't matter. Just like when Christ returns and you're standing before him and you're going, well, wait a minute. Can't I just... No. Too late. It's over. But you don't understand. It doesn't matter. You've been given opportunity. They were given opportunity to fill their flask with oil. They didn't do it. doesn't matter why. It's irrelevant. Because they had ample warning that the bridegroom was coming. They had ample opportunity to be totally prepared at his arrival. And there could be nothing that would excuse that. See, when the, when the Lord appears at the end of the tribulation, beloved, don't forget, there's going to be many professed Christians. Many professed Christians who are all of a sudden going to frantically realize, you know what, they don't have the spiritual life that it takes. They don't have salvation. They've been professing Christ. They've been maybe serving Christ. They would have not have heeded Paul's advice to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, here's what Paul said. He said, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? See, we need to be reminded in our age of grace, sometimes we want to just curl up in the couch of grace and just go, oh, this is so nice. You know, Jesus died for my sins and I'm trusting in him. And what's he doing in your life lightly? Well, nothing, but I'm just sitting here in the armchairs of grace waiting for him to come back. Maybe he's not doing anything in your life lately because he's not in your life. That could be a very valid point. These people will be self-deceived. Maybe believing that the mere association with the church the association with Christ, the association with the people of Christ, somehow has made them part of the church. No, that won't happen. Some may think because they were born into a, quote, Christian family, that they're a member of God's family. No, that's not valid either. We definitely know that some will be trusting in their own good works. Because in Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 to 23, Jesus says, on that day, Christ says this, they'll stand before the the Christ and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not in your name perform many miracles? I mean, those are valid things, beloved. Those are spiritual works. But look at what he says. He'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, unless you have Christ, unless you have that personal relationship with Christ, unless you have personally come to the understanding that you are lost in your sins, you're dead in your sins, you're caught in your trespass, there's nothing you can do other than turn to Christ and yield your life to Him. Then you'll be saved. See, Christianity isn't one of these religions where you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try to work life out. It doesn't work that way. And that's why the request by the the foolish bridesmaids is so silly in verse 8. Can you give us some of your oil? (laughs) I've heard read commentaries on, well, see, they were selfish. That's why they, that's ridiculous. That's not the point. The point is, you know what? I can't give you my salvation. Any more than you can give me yours. 
when the foolish bridesmaids apparently tried to get light in their dry torches, <laughs> their little cloth, no oil in it, would just kind of smolder and go out. And it was too late for them to get any help. And you had the wise ones there with a flask of oil, and they're trimming their lamps, and they're, they're, theirs is burning bright. But you know what? Their oil wasn't enough to share with anyone else. It was necessary that each buy their own oil. That's what it says. It wasn't because they were selfish or callous and they were unable to help their friends on the wedding party. That's not the idea. The simple fact is that just as one person cannot transfer part of his physical life to another, okay, if if you know someone who's dying, I can't give them my life. That doesn't work that way. Physically, you can't do that. You can't do that spiritually either. Like physical life, spiritual life is a direct individual gift from God. It's not transferable. A saved person can't themselves become saviors to other people. It doesn't work that way. Those who receive grace cannot impart grace. We don't go around imparting grace to people's lives. Even when we go out and share the gospel, we don't go out and save people. That's a work that only God can do. Our job is to bring the meal to the table, to bring the gospel to them, to say, here's the message of the gospel. Here's what it is. We don't need to dumb it down. We don't need to to make it simple to understand. We just take the gospel. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. Christ is the Savior. He died for your sins. He was buried. He rose on the third day. He wants to be the Lord of your life. When you come to the point in time where you acknowledge, yeah, that's what I want. I want someone to save me. I need a Savior. I'm lost in my sin. That's like you're the guy on the corner saying, man, beating his breast, saying, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's why I get so uptight sometimes about this. You know, sometimes people share, well, I'm just going to have them share, pray the sinner's prayer. What is the sinner's prayer? Where does that come from? It doesn't come from Scripture. That's not biblical. I mean, there's nothing wrong with sharing your faith and using tracts and whatever. But you know, when it comes time for people to put their faith in Christ, that's exactly what they need to do. We don't need to dumb it down and, okay, well, first of all, you know, pray this. You know, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Okay, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I mean, if they don't understand that they're a sinner, then they don't understand they need a Savior, and they have no business even praying. (laughs) let alone praying a, quote, sinner's prayer. So we need to be careful about some of the terms and some of the ways that we evangelize the lost. Our goal is to take the message to the lost and dying world. Either they accept it or they reject it. Salvation can't be bought. And that's why they couldn't go buy it from other dealers almost refers that securing salvation is only available from one dealer, and that's God. The oil was only available from one place. Isaiah 55.1 says, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you, will have, and you who have no money, come. Buy, eat. Come, buy wine, milk. But do it without money, without cost. See, that's, that's the thing that sets Christianity apart from the rest of the religious world. The rest of the religious world is telling you, you know what, if you want to know my God, then somehow you've got to clean yourself up enough to where he'll accept you. And in some religions, there is no acceptance, there's no forgiveness, there's nothing. It's hopeless. Christianity is the one religion that says, no, the Savior died for you. You, you can't do anything. You simply acknowledge who he is and what he did for you, and he will save you. You can't buy it. And the same idea Jesus used about us in the parable when the about the uh, the the pearl of great price. Remember back in in Matthew thirteen, the treasure found in the field. All those things. The same idea. The discoverer sold everything he possessed in order to obtain that which was valued above all else. That's where it goes back to the preparedness. 
You know, are you, are you prepared to meet the Lord one day? Have you given up everything that it takes to come to Christ? Salvation is free, beloved, but there's a cost. There's a cost involved that Jesus says that. If you want to follow me, you have to what? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. You follow me. You don't worry about what everybody else is doing. You follow me. I mean, even Paul in his deepest conviction in Romans 9, verses 3 and 4, I mean, and I think he said this sincerely. He said, I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. In other words, he wanted his brothers and sisters to be saved so much. The the, the folks that he, not literal brothers and sisters, but his his brethren, that he was willing to give up his salvation if he could. (laughs) Doesn't work that way, though. It's impossible. When people come to Christ, they come on their own. You can't grab somebody else's oil flask and dump it on your torch and say, okay, now now I've got it. No, it doesn't work that way. In Luke chapter 6, verses 47 to 49, Jesus says this, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the floods came, the torrent burst against that house, could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who had heard and listen, had not acted accordingly, is like a man who built his house upon the ground without any foundation, which would be ridiculous. You would never build a house without any foundation. And the torrent bursts against it, and immediately it collapsed. And the ruin of that house was great. Why was it so great? Because it looked just like the other house. It looks just like the other house. You wouldn't know it until the storm came. Where's the foundation in most houses? You don't see the foundation. It's under the ground. Or at least a significant part of it is. It's not just what you see on the outside, beloved. It's what you possess on the inside. People who live and build their lives on any other foundation than Jesus Christ, honestly, they're doomed for destruction. They don't have the necessary grace. They don't have the imputed righteousness. They don't have that resident holiness of God within their lives. And they probably don't have any transformed character to counter the destructiveness of sin. And the Bible says the ultimate consequence of sin is death. In short, they have no spiritual life and therefore they have no eternal hope. They may feel happy in Jesus all day long. They may even admire his teachings. They may enjoy the fellowship of his people. They may even look for his coming as prepared true believers do, having their torches just like the rest. But you know what? They haven't prepared. They don't have the oil with which to light them. And in the end here, we see basically the crisis, the closed door. Verse 10. And while they were going out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was what? Shut. The door was shut. That was it. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Hey, Lord, Lord, open to us. We're back. We got our oil. Which they probably couldn't get at midnight anyway, so they probably didn't even find it. Jesus says, watch therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. The door is closed. I don't know about you, but I thank God the door is not yet closed. The door is still open. See, the the whole pretense of their whole religiosity there, these bridesmaids part of this thing, was over. And their foolishness and their foolish character was exposed. And you know what? It's going to be a moment of sheer terror when unbelievers face a holy God and realize with absolute certainty that they will be eternally lost. I mean, think of the the people back in Noah's day. 
They've been warned, they've been warned, they've been warned. What'd they do? They mocked the whole process. They mocked Noah, they mocked his ark, they mocked God, they mocked everything. Can you imagine when the floodwaters began to rise over their heads, but they knew the door of the ark was shut forevermore? See, the parable of these ten bridesmaids, these virgins, illustrates the time of Christ's second coming. Its truths apply to an unbeliever's facing God at death. The moment of opportunity for salvation at that point will be past and all hope will be gone. That's where he gives you that challenge at the end there. Be on the alert because you don't know when this is going to happen. Be on guard. I pray this morning that your heart is steadfast in Christ, that you're not trusting in your religion, you're not trusting in this church, you're not trusting in, in how much you read the Bible or whatever. You're trusting in Christ, in Christ alone for your salvation. There was a poem written by Alfred Lord Tennyson. And it was a poem based on this parable. It says this, Late, late, so late, and dark the night and chill. Late, late, so late, but we can enter still. Too late, too late, you cannot enter now. No light had we, for that we do repent. And learning this, the bridegroom will relent. Too late, too late. You cannot enter now. No light, so late, and dark and chill the night. Oh, let us in, that we may find the light. Too late, too late. You cannot enter now. Have we not heard the bridegroom is so sweet? Oh, let us in. Even though late to kiss his feet. No, no, too late. You cannot enter now. Father, we pray this morning that for the souls gathered in this room, that they will not hear those words one day. No, no, too late. You cannot enter now. Father, we've all been given opportunity in our lives through the truth of the gospel. Maybe you're here this morning and you've heard it over and over and over and over again. To be honest, I don't know what you're waiting for. There'll come a day when you will die, you will leave this earth or Christ will come back. Impending you following him, you will be lost in your sins forever in a place called hell. Eternal torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very real place, just as real as heaven is. But it's a godless place. It's a place where there is no love, there's no grace, there's no joy. Just toil, pain and suffering. This isn't rocket science. It's, it's very simple. You acknowledge your sin before a holy God and you realize that you can't save yourself. You cry out to him. Lord, save me. Help me to understand this gospel that I hear. Help me to understand this Christ that I don't know. Save me. You cry out in desperation to him. That, when that cry comes from a humble heart, from a heart that's broken over their sin. God will give you everything you need to save you. He'll transform you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And you will possess the oil that's needed to allow your torch to burn bright before a lost and dying world. Beloved, don't trust in your own works, in your own wisdom, in your own intellect. 
and your own knowledge. That's not going to get you to heaven. You need to put your faith and trust in Christ. Humble yourself under his mighty hand, and he'll save you. I pray that that would be your prayer this morning. Lord, save me from my sin. Father, we pray as Christians, Lord, as we leave this place, that we would realize that there's a lost and dying world out there that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Christ. And Father, you've given it into our hand to take this message of hope and forgiveness through Christ to these people who have yet to hear or maybe they've rejected. But Lord, that's our, that's our focus as the church. That's why you left us here, to introduce others to the Savior. I pray that we would take that seriously and that we would await your return and that we would be prepared with oil and our torches burning bright. Come quickly, even Lord Jesus, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.